Well, this evening we find ourselves right in the middle of our series in 1 Corinthians, which has been titled by me, I guess I had to pick a title, uh, Following Jesus in the Real World. And I guess if you think about that title, it's kind of silly because where else would you follow Jesus but the real world? Um, but there's some, some other truth to that. Like, I, I love this faith, this Christian Christianity faith, because it's a faith that's rooted in reality and has bearing on our everyday life, our earthy life, our conflicted, not perfect, struggling kind of life. And as we've seen in the letter that we're studying, 1 Corinthians, it's written to, to a church in Corinth who are really having a hard time following through on their commitment to follow Jesus in their real world. For example, the Corinthian Christians were struggling with personality conflicts inside the church. That never happens, right? Um, one group in the Corinthian church thought that Paul was just the best teacher ever, and everything Paul says was just perfect. And then there was another group inside the church who thought, well, Peter is kind of the head of the church in Rome, and that we think whatever he says is authoritative. Then there was another group who thought the eloquent Apollos, this traveling teacher who, oh my gosh, I wish I could have heard him speak in person. It sounds like he was just an amazing preacher. And so some groups were really into Apollos such that these groups were divided within themselves. And Paul is pointing out the fact that, listen, the reason you guys are divided with these personality issues is because you're letting the world influence you. By the way, Peter and, and Apollos and I, we have no problem with each other. Like, Peter or Paul was good friends with all of them. See, in that day, traveling teachers called sophists would come to town and gather followings of disciples. This happened in Corinth quite a bit, actually. These disciples would pay money to learn how to smooth talk and pontificate from these sophists because that was a popular form of entertainment and education in that day. Part of the duty of a loyal disciple to a sophist was to be loyal without question to their teacher, such that they would oftentimes um, try and reduce the name of, of rival sophists and teachers. Sometimes they would even get in fights like, yeah, Charles is my master and, and I'm going to beat you up if you're, if you're Eric's disciple because, you know, I'm, I'm loyal to Charles. And th there would literally be brawls of these, like, people learning rhetoric and all this stuff. It was really ridiculous, actually. Um, but that's the way it was in the real world in Corinth. So Paul's coming to Corinth to share the gospel, and he knows all this stuff about sophists, and he knows that they were in it for the money, and he also knows that sometimes, like, let's say, Ryan is a famous sophist, and uh, Schoon and Jess want uh, Micah to be a, a student of his. Um, they might be very wealthy, and they might pay Ryan uh, extra tips but they would expect that Ryan would let Micah be number one in the class and also that Ryan would teach the things that they wanted him, uh, Micah to learn and in the way they wanted Micah to learn it. So the money controlled the sophists. And they were fine with that because they were just guns for hire. Paul had a problem with that. He came to town preaching the gospel of Jesus the Christ. He didn't want to be mistaken as just one of these talking heads, just one of these sophists. So... When he brought the gospel into Corinth, he was aware of this real world. And instead of coming off as a smooth-tongued sophist who's babbling on about topics that would make a popular hearing, what does he do? Instead, he talks about a poor Jewish man who was crucified on a Roman cross and rose from the dead, and people worship him as God. Not a popular message in Corinth. And instead of claiming his right to a salary like he did in other settings around the world, 
Paul refused to take money in Corinth just to make the point that you cannot control this message. Paul even says, I can't control this message. It was given to me by the Lord himself. So Paul was using his life to try and teach the Corinthian church how to follow Jesus in the real world. He challenged them by helping them see that the world that they lived in with the temples and the athletic games and the feasting and the partying and the marketplaces, the world, the world sees as the real world is just a parody compared to the real world Jesus offers. Paul tried to help the Corinthians see That through Jesus, there is a bigger world available, a world of love and hope, a world where evil, egocentric dictators and self-serving senates have no lasting power. A world where there is one true God, our loving Father, who became weak so that he might save us and give us life. When the Corinthians began trusting in Jesus, they realized that he was just Uh, more than just another teacher among the many teachers out there. And they realized that Jesus was more than just one more option to a new religion. What they found was that what Paul was saying is true, that Jesus is alive. And it didn't make sense necessarily intellectually, but then they began to have encounters with him, that their lives actually began to change from the inside out. And looking out here, I know many of you have had that experience, a, a conversion experience, or you just know because you've been following Jesus for some time, that he is alive inside of you. They begin to realize that Jesus loves them, that he transformed them, that he freed them from sin and death, and he gave them new life and eyes to see the world as it really is, God's world. And the Bible usually calls God's world the kingdom of God, or in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven, same thing. In the United States, just as in the world in Corinth, we love to talk about our rights. We have the right, in America at least, to free speech. We have the right to legal representation. We have the right to an education. And with all of these rights that we have a right to, we th- there's a lot of rights that we think we have the right to. Like fast internet. Oh my gosh, how frustrating is it when the internet is slow for some reason? It drives me crazy. This, I have a right to fast internet. I'm paying for it. We feel like we have a right to a generally comfortable life. And when we get sick or when we get injured or when something happens that is knocks us off of that comfort zone, we get all ticked off about it. This is not normal. This is not right. We think we have the right. I'm guilty of this one. We think we have the right to an easy commute where people ought to know that wherever I'm going is more important than where they're going. Why are they going slow in the fast lane? Don't do that. That's Canadian. Just kidding. We perceive that world of rights, our rights, my rights, to be the real world. And I'm saying this to myself as much as you. We would be wrong to see the world in that way. Jesus and his disciple Paul, after him, present a truer, better, everlasting, infinitely more awesome world. A world at odds with the one we most often see on TV or read about in the news. And the purpose of this letter to the Corinthians is to open their eyes up to this new world so they can make the adjustments necessary to thrive there. Do you want to thrive in the kingdom of God? It's okay to talk. Yes, I would love to do that. So let's listen to what Paul has to say about this. Uh, It's in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 27, and I encourage you to stand if you're able as we read this. 
For though I am free from all people, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. And to those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partner of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not just beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Lord, help us as we attend now now to your word to hear what it is you're saying, what it is your meaning for us to hear. And would you please give us the grace and the courage to obey what it is you're saying. Amen. You may be seated. So as you could probably tell from the beginning of that sentence, we are not starting a new idea here. Like tonight, we are diving in right in the middle of a conversation that Paul has been having with the Corinthians. And last Sunday, we saw how some in the Corinthian church were making a case that, hey, there's only one God, right? And so all the pagan idols in Corinth can't be real because there's only one God in the universe. And so therefore, they were saying, since the temples don't have any real gods in them, we might as well go to the temples and partake in these feasts because they're not real in the first place. Paul agrees with them. He says, you're right, the pagan gods aren't real. There's only one God, he's Yahweh. But as a pastor, Paul recognizes that just because something is is lawful doesn't mean it's good for you. And so last week we saw how at these feasts in the pagan temples, um, they were known for other things besides just worship of false gods, right? They were known for gluttony and drunkenness and all these other kinds of practices that break down relationships like marriages and reputations and destroy your very soul. So Paul was especially concerned about those Corinthian Christians who might be tempted to go back to a pagan lifestyle. After all, that's where many of them have come out of before he was there uh, in town. So he taught them that sometimes the loving thing to do as a follower of Jesus is to lay down your rights for the sake of someone else. To lay down your rights, in this case, to go party at these pagan temples because it might tempt a weaker brother or sister to do the same thing. It's that Jesus, it's what Jesus has done that drives Paul to be able to lay down his rights. It's the gospel. And I wonder, what drives you and I in the decisions that we make in life? What drives us? When we are not healthy in our relationship with Jesus, I see two primary ways that we try and navigate following Jesus in the real world. 
when we're not healthy. First of all, we tend to follow Jesus when we're not healthy by just going through the motions. We go to church, we sing the songs, we do the service projects, but at work or out in town or at school, we look no different than anybody else. We blend in, and the fancy word for that that missiologists use is accommodation. We're so worried about fitting in with people at work or with our friends at school that we just don't make a stand for anything. We don't do the right thing. We don't say, uh, we don't stand up for people who are maybe getting pushed around because we just want to fit in. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to be labeled as one of those Christian fanatics. We get so focused on what everybody else is doing to the point where uh, we cease to live out of our new identity in Christ. Jesus says about his disciples, and that would be you if you are a follower of Jesus, that you are the salt of the earth, that you are the light of the world. And what happens is when we go out in in the world into our daily lives, and when we just accommodate, when we don't act any differently than anybody else, is we lose our saltiness. And it's like being a flaming light that we put under a basket so no one else can see it. Now, some people have read this passage that I just read and have seen Paul and think that he's doing something like accommodating. Basically, like a chameleon, he seems to change his color depending on his company. Right? When he's with Jews, he's like a Jew. When he's with Gentiles, he's like a Gentile. I'm all things to all people. And I've heard a lot of people say that about themselves. Well, I'm just being all things to all people like Paul, which means you don't necessarily stand for anything. But if you look closer, Paul is using some sophisticated rhetoric to make a point. He says that when he's sharing the gospel with Jewish people, he becomes as a Jewish person so that he might win Jews to Jesus. And then you would expect Paul to say that when I'm with Gentile people, I become a Gentile to win Gentiles to Jesus. In fact, many people have read it and taught it this way. They say, do whatever it takes to talk about Jesus to someone. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. But that's not what Paul says here, and this is why. Paul is a Jew. Like, that's his nationality. That's what, and and at one point in his life, he was not only just a Jewish guy, but he was a Jewish rabbi, a teacher of the Jewish law before he became a Christian. So he really can't become a Jew, right? He already is. What he means is that now that he's a Christian, when he's with Jewish people, he's okay with following the Jewish kosher laws, like eating the right way and following Sabbath and going to synagogue with Jewish people and and worshiping with them. He can enjoy some good bacon. There's no doubt about that. But when he's with Jewish people, he doesn't want to offend them on purpose if he doesn't have to. So he's willing to lay down that right to have bacon. That's a serious thing. Ask Tommy. He brought the bacon wraps there. He's willing to sacrifice those specific rights for the sake of his Jewish brothers and sisters. But he's not sinning in doing that. What Paul is not willing to do, by the way, I just need to say this, is he's not, he's not willing to allow Jewish converts to Christianity to then go to Gentile people and say, hey, if you want to become a Christian now, you have to follow the kosher laws and get circumcised and follow the Sabbath and do all of these things. In fact, just read Galatians if you want more on that. In fact, I think, by the way, if you want extra credit, as you're reading through 1 Corinthians, read Galatians as an accompaniment. There, 
they're beautiful together because they are um, Paul's views on things on two separate ends of the spectrum. But anyway, what Paul is willing to do is to identify with his Jewish brothers and sisters so that he can tell them about Jesus. Now to the Gentiles, a term he doesn't actually use in this part of the section. What he says is, um, those who do not live under the law. And when he's ministering to them, he doesn't become a Gentile. He can't. He's a Jewish guy, remember? But he can partake in a good ham sandwich with them. Right? He can do that as a Christian. He can break the Sabbath to go to a Gentile's friend's home for dinner if he gets an invitation. He can live as one who is not under the Jewish law because he's not under the Jewish law. He's in Christ. But Paul never watered down, and this is, I think, a really important part. Paul never watered down the good news of Jesus just for the sake of his audience. Right? And I will say this, that it's a temptation in the Western church and the church in the United States to do that. And a lot of churches, we've all been part of a lot of churches that, that do that from time to time. So let's just make it super simple, like, um, Jesus loves you, and all you got to do is X, Y, and Z, and bam, you're a Christian. And you know, when you read about Jesus introducing the gospel, he almost like, if people were getting too close and too easy, he was like, I don't think you get how hard this is. He did things like, say, count the cost, and then people ran away. He did things like, said, you got to eat my body and drink my blood, and didn't explain what that really meant. And people were like, that's weird, I'm out of here, and he just let them go. So there's a sense to where there's a more robustness to this gospel and paul never watered down the gospel just for the sake of getting an audience in fact he got beaten almost to death several times by jewish people and a mob of gentiles once stoned him with rocks trying to kill this guy so he made everybody mad on both sides of the aisle nt Wright sums it up nicely he writes when he says he's become all things to all people He's not suggesting that he's trimming his message to make it acceptable. Paul wasn't simply finding points of contact with his pagan audience. One of the main points of his message is that idols and temples are a complete waste of time. And saying that in Athens or in Corinth is rather like arriving in Dublin and declaring that God doesn't like Guinness. And kids, it's like if you're going to go to Legoland <laughs> to tell kids, other kids about Jesus, and you go there and say, by the way, God doesn't like Legos. I mean, that's how offensive this would be. I'm sure he likes Legos. It's fine. The point is that for the sake of the gospel, Paul is willing to lay down his rights for the sake of others, at least to the point that he's still able to be obedient to Jesus. He's not willing to waver on that. The second way we tend to follow Jesus when we are not healthy is to obsess about how not to sin. So some of us uh, struggle with accommodation. Uh, we just don't want to make a, any waves, and so we're just going to pretend like, you know, Jesus is a private thing, and I'm not going to be Salter-like, okay? The other way is, uh, is a, a swing in the other direction, and it's all about, for some of us, how not to sin. Somewhere along the line, we've been taught that the goal of being a follower of Jesus is to avoid doing certain things. That Christianity is mostly about what not to do. Don't say certain words, don't drink certain things, don't eat certain things, don't have too much fun, don't think certain thoughts. Darn it, I just thought that, you know, you can't even control this stuff and then you just feel bad. And when we try to live a life of not sinning rather than living well, we feel ashamed and guilty and empty and eventually we feel angry 
People living a life of sin management, as Dallas Willard likes to put it, are, are the types of people who eventually begin to judge others because they feel their own failure so deeply they project it on everyone else, either just as a subconscious thing or as a way of sizing themselves up. To, I can make myself feel better if, you know, oh, I only prayed three times this week. I'm such a bad person, but I know that person didn't pray at all. So what? You should pray more. You laugh, but you know you do it. <laughs> Some people think sin management is what Paul is talking about in verses 24 through 27 of this passage. About the discipline. Beating your body into submission, making it a slave. As I mentioned last week, Corinth was the site of the Isthmian Games. They were second importance only to the Olympic Games in terms of prestige. But while the Olympic Games, at least back in the day, were every four years, the Isthmian Games were every two years. So in a four-year span, there's only one year out of, out of there that there's no games. That meant that Corinth, the host of these Isthmian Games every two years, was just an, a big sports town. It was a big sports town, saturated with sports. Athletes in the games had to make an oath to Zeus to train diligently for 10 months prior to the games. If they failed to do so, to show up at the gymnasium uh, and fulfill their oath, they would be disqualified from the games. Now, Paul picks up on this language because it would have been familiar to the Corinthians. What were we talking about here? Uh, I don't know, maybe he'd have like microbrew analogies or something like that if he was in Bellingham, who knows? <coughs> but it was a big deal here. So he draws on this sports language. And they would have seen firsthand the discipline and commitment that athletes invested in their training and in their bodies to perform. You see, back then there were no like gold, silver, and bronze medals in the games. There was no second and third place or 14th place or participation awards. There was one. So you ran a race, there was one winner. And you didn't get a gold medal. You got a laurel. For the Olympic Games, it was olive branches usually. For the Isthmian Games, it was pine. And some years it was celery. I know, right? So the, the whole thing about it is not the award that you get. It's perishable. It dries up. It goes away. Rabbits eat it off your head. I don't know. But the big thing was... The big thing was the glory of winning, which in itself only lasts until someone else beats you out and takes your record or whatever. Glory, laurels, they're all fading. Here's what Paul is not saying in this passage. Not saying. He is not saying that following Jesus is a competition with other Christians. And he isn't saying that the body is bad and that you have to beat it into submission. And he isn't saying that the harder you try in your own strength, the better you'll be at managing your sin. What Paul is doing is drawing on this common language and reminding the Corinthians and you and I of the reality and power of the gospel. He's reminding us that when we strive with all of our effort to be successful in the world, the reward does not last and in the end, we're left with nothing like dust falling through our fingers. But when we put our life, and when we pour our life out in living for the light of the gospel, then you receive an imperishable reward. You find your life, and you get to lead others to life. When you pour yourself out, 
to live in the world of the gospel, you find your life and you're able to lead others to life. Now that's a bold statement. If Paul is saying that the gospel is worth pouring out your life for, then I think we better understand a little bit more today what is the gospel if it's worth all of this effort. Because I don't like giving up my rights for much. And it better be good. How would you articulate the gospel? If I were to say to you, hey, what's the gospel? How would you answer that? Typically, when we hear the word gospel, at least in Western evangelical settings, we think of Jesus dying on the cross to forgive me and you and the world for our sins. And that's a huge part of the gospel. But let's take a minute and just consider the word gospel. What does that even mean? Isn't that a type of music? Or isn't the gospel just another word for like the honest truth, the gospel truth? Or isn't the gospel a genre of literature like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? That, those are the gospels, right? What does gospel even mean? Of course, a lot of you know, it literally means good news. comes from a German word, Gottspiel, good speech, good declaration. The gospel is news. It's news. It's a declaration. The gospel is not a proposition about how to get rid of your guilt, although good news of the gospel is your guilt can be scrubbed away in Christ. The gospel is not the way to heaven, although you will experience heaven through the power of the gospel. The gospel is news of an event. The gospel is more than just a new spirituality for me, myself, and I. It's bigger than individual forgiveness of sin. It's more significant than merely an alternative to other religions. The word gospel translates a Greek word, euangelion. I need my cohort kids to help me with this word. Can you say euangelion? Oh, your Greek training is going well. Euangelion. It means good news. And it specifically, you guys, it meant when a new king was born or conquered a land, a runner, a big uh, a herald would come into the town and say, da, 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 da. I have you, the euangelion here. Queen Emma is now the empress of this land. Kneel. That's the euangelion. A new king is in the land. Now, what does it mean then that Jesus came declaring the euangelion of God? He says, I'm here, and the, the good news is here. It means that Jesus is king. It means that he is judge. It's news that he is bringing the kingdom of God. It's also news that kingdoms at odds with the kingdom of God won't stand. So don't put your faith all in one basket of an earthly dictator. Or even your faith, all of it in democracy. Or even all in the next candidates that are coming up. We've got to do our part. Do our research. Vote. Pray for our leaders. But in the end, those people aren't going to save you and me. They're not going to save the, the planet, the world in the end, right? That's the good news, the gospel. The gospel is news that God's kingdom consists of love and truth and obedience to the Father. It's news that all are invited to the banqueting table of fellowship with the Father. It's news that on our own, you and I were disqualified from this life with God. But it's better news that Jesus makes us qualified 
through his sacrificial death. The gospel is good news that Jesus does not lower the standard so that I can make it in. The standard is high. He doesn't lower it so that people like me can make it in or people like you. What he does instead is he meets the standard for us. Amen? I can't meet it. He meets it for me. He meets it for you. He brings us into this glorious thing. He doesn't say, well, you guys don't really deserve this awesomeness. I'm going to you know, bring it down to the, ba- uh, the bargain basement level. You guys can come in this one. No, Jesus qualifies us to partake in the kingdom. Jesus does not pretend that sin is no big deal. Ah, you know, that's fine, you guys. I mean, it's not that big a deal. No, it's such a big deal that God became flesh and gave up his rights and gave up his comfort and gave up his life. It's such a big deal. And he doesn't hold it over you and me. He says, come, I've done this for you. I've done this for you. I'm very close. Come. So you see, for Paul, the gospel, the good news of Jesus coming to rescue the world was worth giving up his rights for and disciplining himself so that he could live it out and invite others to do the same. Dallas Willard writes, or wrote, the way to get as many people into heaven as you can is to get heaven into as many people as you can. Let me say that again. The way to get as many people to heaven as you can is to get heaven into as many people as you can. That is, to follow the path of genuine spiritual transformation or full-throttle discipleship. Exactly. You see, Paul was reminding the Corinthian church that as followers of Jesus, they were partners in the gospel. He's saying, look, the gospel of Jesus is the real world. But if you want to live in it, you can't just float through it. It it takes training to really thrive in this world. It's like, I don't know, like if somebody, if you didn't know how to drive and somebody gives you a brand new Ferrari, it's, oh, this is the best thing in the world. It's all yours. It's all free. I paid for it. Learn how to drive that stinking thing. Otherwise, it's sitting there looking pretty, right? It's like, you don't have to do anything to get in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus does all that, but he says, if you want to really thrive here and, and, and experience the life, it takes, it takes training. Why does it take training? Because I'm trained in all the wrong ways. I'm trained to look out for myself. I'm trained to uh, obey my belly, literally with food, but also other impulses that I have. I'm trained all wrong. I'm all backwards. I'm all screwed up for the kingdom. And that's actually what I want to close today. Not my mistakes, although I'm happy to talk to you about those. But um, the gospel is built on the grace of Jesus. You and I were invited free of charge. We don't have to try harder or beat our body into submission to be accepted by Jesus. We just trust him. But when we begin to trust him, you'll also see that there's this whole new life available to you. Did I ever tell you the story about my motorcycle? I, I, I had this uh, Honda XR100 when I was like, 13 years old. It was this awesome trail bike. I thought I had four speeds because my previous, my 80 had four speeds. And so I'm riding through the, and I remember the day I was on this, uh, this old airstrip with my buddy, we were racing, and I realized I had fifth gear. I accidentally shifted up. It was this whole new horizon for me. You guys, there's, there's like more gears in life than I think you think you have. And, and so it takes training to tap into this stuff. So what does training in the gospel look like? You're like, oh, crap, here's the part where it's going to be all this stuff i got to do. What I want to start with is the part that you're probably already doing. 
and didn't know about it. Because, you know, sometimes, uh, I, and I used the Karate Kid one a few weeks back, that example. Remember how Danielson was doing all the painting and the waxing? He goes, this is ridiculous. I don't like any of this. I want to learn karate. And then Miyagi, of course, shows him, you've actually been training. I've just been showing you the steps, the basics, right? So you've already been in training. Let me share some ways. First of all, you've gathered as the church to worship today. We are in training together right now. We have laid our rights down. You have laid your right down to do something probably a lot more fun than listen to me right now. But instead, you're here. Lord, reward you for that, because I mean, I'd rather be skiing some days than being here too. We've laid our rights down to do whatever we want on the weekend to come and worship. We are learning about God's word together. I learn, every time I prepare one of these messages, I learn more and more about these passages. I love to share that with you. We are growing in the word together. We're being trained through the singing of praises. Trained to worship because we're getting invited to do it, but also trained by the messages in those songs. They wash over us, remind us of God's truth. We are being trained when we share life together in a church setting because, honestly, outside of the church setting, we're also different that we may not seek each other out like this. We may not hang out with all the diverse types of people we have here if it weren't for Jesus, if it weren't for the church. You're in training about how to get along with difficult people. We're being trained each time we give on a Sunday or whenever of our hard-earned money as a statement in trust, uh, of trust in the Father who provides for us. And we're being trained every time we come to the table to come to Jesus, the source of our life. If you volunteer in the community, like I know many of you do, because you're being obedient to Jesus, you're being trained. You are disciplining yourself to put others before you and your agenda. There's all kinds of things you could be doing rather than working with other people and investing in lives. It's training. Training of giving up your rights. If you participate in serving our children in some way, or up in the sound booth, or projection, or worship team, or cooking the meal each Sunday, or setting up the sanctuary, leading a small group, or a discipleship group, you're being trained to trade selfishness for service. If you pray, you are being trained in trusting God rather than just what your eyes can see and what you can smell and taste and touch and feel. Prayer is weird. When you think about it, what are you doing? <laughs> it's training to trust in the living God. And playing together is training. It's why we feast together. It's why we retreat together. It's why we eat together. We are training to enjoy God's good creation in a way that makes him central and not ourselves. There's a difference between holy feasting and partying. And if you didn't know better, you maybe couldn't tell because there's some good holy feasts out there. But when we put Jesus as the middle, as the reason for doing these fun things, it makes all the difference. It's training. Why, it's why we read the Bible. We're getting to know the story of God. I know the cohort kids are, are doing scripture memory right now, and that is a way of training. And I want you guys to know, uh, I don't know what you think about me coming over to my house on Fridays. You get to ask me all these questions. But I'm also doing scripture memory because I'm not done training yet. I just feel like a beginner. So, and a lot of uh, other grown-ups are doing that as well because we need that. 
We need to keep growing in Christ. Let me close with this. What are other ways, as I presented some of those, what are some other ways that you are already in training? Like, maybe it's intentional. Maybe you realize, like, actually, that thing that I do or don't do is actually training. Good, I can chalk that up to something. Lord, would you work through that? And what are some ways that Jesus might be inviting you to join him in sharing the good news of Jesus with others? That would be training as well. And finally, what might he be inviting you to let go of? What rights, maybe, is he inviting you to let go of so that you can grab onto him and his life more fully? Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you that you um, love us enough to be direct with us and also very gracious. Thank you in a message about discipline. There's also good news, a a thread of good news running throughout the whole thing. Thank you that you don't just call us to discipline for discipline's sake or as some kind of punishment, but you're inviting us to enjoy and, 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 and spread out and experience a bigger world, the world of your kingdom. Lord, would you help us to thrive there and help us to love others enough to invite them there as well.